0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tanya, it's very nice to be here with you tonight. I, I will talk a little bit about Buddhist Global Relief as we get to the end, and I think there will probably be time for your questions, but first I want to talk about Dhamma. Um, One of the things that I see is that we can be very inhibited in our practice and our development and happiness in our life by shame, guilt, and regret. And so I want to talk a little bit about those, about how we can recover from shame and eradicate guilt and resolve regrets. It frees the heart. And actually, from what I can tell, um, Buddhism is a no-guilt religion. There's really no place for that kind of quality of ongoing feeling bad about ourselves, about something we've done in the past. There is, um, of course, a healthy kind of remorse that we might have, over that we should have, like conscience, over things that we have done that are unskillful, particularly emphasizing to ourselves that we don't want to do that again. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So the first thing that we can do to resolve and recover from shame, guilt, and regret is to look at what we feel ashamed of or guilty about or have regrets over and identify whether we really did something wrong or not. How do you decide if you did something wrong? It's not based on whether or not it's... um, particularly skillful in the best way you could have said something or done something it's it's clearer than that because we need to have a clear line of what's wholesome and unwholesome and the Buddha when he identified what's wholesome and unwholesome he did it based on where those actions lead if it leads to happiness and peace it's wholesome if it leads to suffering Dukkha in any of its forms, misery, discomfort, dissatisfaction, it's unwholesome. So how do we tell? Well, one good measure is the five precepts. If what we've done breaks one of the five precepts, one or more, then we put it in the unwholesome category. And I'll just list them. Many of you have work, are working with them, I know, but it's to not take the life of any living being intentionally, to not take what isn't given or avoid taking what isn't given, to avoid sexual misconduct. And sometimes people wonder what the Buddha meant by that. And my um, the way I talk about it these days is you don't have sex with someone who... Has a partner, a committed relationship, or is involved with someone. You don't flirt with them. You don't do sexual innuendo. um, And you also, if you have a partner, you're not doing those things with other people. That, I think, is pretty clear that that's harmful. So no sexual misconduct. Also, avoiding false speech and harmful speech and avoiding the use of drugs and alcohol. So those five precepts can help us a lot. Whether we're upset about our own behavior or we're upset by someone else's behavior, we can measure it against the five precepts. Sometimes we find we're upset with ourselves or with others. We can find what someone's doing very irritating, feel triggered by it. But if we ask ourselves, are they really doing anything wrong, if we base that on an evaluation against the five precepts, perhaps they aren't doing anything wrong. And it helps a lot to say, okay, I feel irritated by this person, by what this person is saying, but they're not really doing anything wrong. It helps us to let go. Now, another measure that the Buddha used was ten wholesome and ten unwholesome qualities. And he talked about this in many, many discourses. In the numerical discourses, there are about 80 discourses that involve these 10 wholesome or unwholesome things. And the first four come from the first four precepts. So we just covered those. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and lying. Those first three fall in the category of Unwholesome bodily action, lying falls in the category of unwholesome speech, and the Buddha identifies three other kinds of unwholesome speech in this particular list. It's the same as the sort of discussion and and definition of right speech um, and wrong speech in the noble eightfold path. So. We want to avoid lying. We also want to invo- avoid divisive or malicious speech and avoid harsh or abusive speech and avoid idle chatter. Those are the four aspects of, right, of, of wholesome speech or unwho- the opposites are ho- unwholesome speech. So that gets us up to seven. And now the other three, the last three, are mental actions. And they're the mental actions that lie at the root of the causes of suffering or happiness. So the, this, the first one, number eight in the list, is often translated as longing or desire. Longing is nice you're longing for something from that longing you can act unwholesome in unwholesome ways so that can be an unwholesome root and the opposite is non longing the ninth one is ill will as opposed to goodwill and the 10th one is wrong view as opposed to right view so relative or uh, compared to the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we have this nice list of ten. We can we can evaluate our own behavior, what we feel ashamed of, remorseful over, or regretful over, or feel guilty about, according to those. Now there, of course, is um, this... These Pali words of Hiri, Otapa, which means a a skillful kind of regret or remorse, is Hiri, conscience. And Otapa is a skillful kind of fear of wrongdoing. So those are positive. But a lot of times when we are feeling bad about ourselves, it's not helpful, it's debilitating it keeps us from developing and we can have some very strong habits around this so when these feelings come up and we recognize that we've actually done something wrong then there are ways to work with that Um, we identify that we've done something wrong and we don't want to do that anymore The Buddha's whole system, and you can really see it clearly in the monastic code, that it's about rehabilitation. So we acknowledge what we've done, um, and we learn from it. And uh, Ajahn Brahm, I don't know if anybody listens to his talks or seen him speak, but he he calls it the AFL method. Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. And when we do that, um, the Buddha in all of the places, in the suttas or in the, in the vinya, when people do that, when they acknowledge they're wrong and they make a resolution to do it differently, that's accepted. It's accepted and encouraged. And that's the way to growth. Because we're all here learning. We all do things that are unskillful. We all do things that we maybe didn't see the, the results of this is, is harmful. Or we did and were overcome by some aspect of desire or aversion, and, and that's just how we learn. But the important thing is that we do learn, and we learn how to forgive ourselves and others. We can reflect on the fact that years later, perhaps years later, we may still have that memory come up in the mind and feel bad. And that we can remind ourselves, but I don't do that anymore. It's in the past. And this being that we are, we think this is a you know, constant entity, but actually it's not. It's an ongoing process of change. And... We were different then when we did whatever that was. Even if it was yesterday, we're different now. And we can have that resolve in our mind. And we can do things that correct it. Whatever we've done, we can make amends. We can... um, do good things and share the blessings of those good actions with those that we've harmed. There's always a path of spiritual recovery, no matter what we've done. And if we find that when we evaluate why we feel bad about something that we've done, and we realize, according to those standards that the Buddha gave us, that we really didn't do anything wrong, we've got a habit of going over things from the past or they just pop up in the mind and that feeling comes with it and we can't let it go. So what do you do about that? So the Buddha gave very clear instructions about how to deal with what we think and what we feel. So when a feeling arises, it arises coming along with a thought and we can't control that it arises but once a feeling arises we have choices we can make about what to do with it my sense about feeling is that the first response should be compassion that we're present with what we feel not suppressing it not pushing it away but being present with it, kind of at the edge of it, not getting a wash in it, not being pulled into it, but observing it there in front of us. Being able to stay present with that feeling, watching it change and eventually disappear. But sometimes we notice that it doesn't disappear, and a lot of times that's because of the way we are thinking. When a thought arises feeling comes with it, that part we can't control. We can't we can't control the thoughts that pop into our mind, the ones that just, you know, show up out of that storehouse of karma or sankharas and habits. But the next thought, the one that might be associated with this feeling, that takes it down the path a bit further, that one we have choices about. So the Buddha said that we can get so skillful with what happens once we have a thought arise or a feeling that arises based on something we see or something we hear, taste, touch, or smell, feel with the body. Whenever there's contact, including the contact of a thought in the mind, then we have choices about what we do with that feeling that comes up with it. The first thing he said to do is to notice whether the feeling is agreeable or disagreeable. Do I like this or do I not like this? Or is it some mixture? This, by the way, comes comes up very clearly in a sutta. In the Middle-Length Discourses, number 152, On development of the faculties, he said the supreme development of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought, mental activity, is to be able to observe what arises, agreeable, disagreeable, or some mixture of both, and then drop it. And he gives these lovely similes of dropping it you see a sight with the eyes and you notice and you know if what is what is arising is agreeable disagreeable or both and then you reestablish equanimity in the mind and just as anyone with good eyesight having opened His eyes might shut them, or having shut his eyes might open them. So too, concerning anything at all that arose, that's agreeable, disagreeable, or both, it goes away that quickly. Shut your eyes, it's gone. Open your eyes, it's gone. Or with a sound with the ear, you notice what comes with it. Well, if it's a nice piece of music agreeable if it's somebody telling you just messed up maybe not agreeable he understands this is agreeable this is not agreeable just as someone might snap their fingers you let it go just like that and equanimity is reestablished Smelling an odor with the nose. The Buddha likened it to drops of water on a tilted lotus leaf rolling off. Just let it roll off. Of course, skillful means that if someone's telling us that we screwed up, then we pay attention to what could I do better, right? But the feeling and the, the thoughts that can come after that, we're very careful not to add... Fuel to the fire. because that's how guilt and shame and unhealthy regret continues to be a habit by adding fuel to the fire. A flavor with the tongue, just as fast as you can spit. it rolls off. It and ceases. Touching something with the body just as quickly as you could extend your arm or flex your arm. It rolls off. It ceases. Equanimity is reestablished. Having a thought in the mind just as if you were to let a Two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day. The falling of the drops might be slow, but they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So this is the way we can look at and work with some habit of the mind. Because those things that we ruminate over, that we feel bad about, often it's not about being unskillful. It's not about doing something terrible or unwholesome. Or It's about saying something stupid or um, misunderstanding something or something that didn't work out the way we wanted it to. Some time we missed saying the right argument you know all kinds of things that we might feel threatened by or hurt by but they're not really unwholesome actions we can drop it the Buddha said it's good to notice the danger in these unskillful ways of thinking he said when you notice the danger you stop putting fuel on the fire This metaphor comes from a sutta in the Sangayutta Nikaya. The Connected Discourses in the chapter in the Book of Twelves, number 52, it's called clinging. That's how clinging happens. We cling to unwholesome patterns. That's why they keep going. And we don't have to. We can make choices about that. We can let it go. But it takes... Effort, it takes attention. And we can really bring compassion to the whole process and find it liberating. As we follow the path of virtue and practice of meditation and development of wisdom our our lives get better more peace more happiness less confusion and we make a lot less trouble but sometimes even well <clears throat> if we focus on virtue and we develop virtuous behavior it helps us develop self esteem it helps us to develop self confidence. And also, this is also true of acts of generosity. Those two things, virtuous behavior and generosity, help us to develop self respect. And then, if we're still not happy, even though we could end every day reflecting on the ways in which we behaved virtuously or avoided unvirtuous behavior. And we can reflect on things that we did that were kind and generous. If we're still not happy, then we need to look at what's going on in the mind and follow these, these beautiful instructions that the Buddha gave us to purify the mind. To become happier. I think, in part, because of um, some of the attitudes and aspects of our culture, we can really have a lot of this, might say, unnecessary or inappropriate shame or guilt. And for myself, I've certainly experienced this. And one year when I was living at Chidhurst Monastery in England, I was there in the winter time, and there's a three-month retreat. So um, in three, three months, you can have a lot of stuff come up, of course, <laughs> in the mind. And in that particular winter retreat, I was just dealing with a tremendous amount of shame and Um, guilt and the abbot uh, Ajahn Suchito was very generous and kind and he said anytime during the three months if you wanted to come to talk to him you could and so I went to talk with him about it it was really miserable I was really miserable and he said to me well I don't think you could have done something so very bad and my thought was You just don't know. (laughs) Um, Because when you feel really bad, it feels like what you've done is awful, right? It's more of a a feeling, a sense of, of, I don't know, kind of just a feeling of how bad you are. Uh, At least that's the way it was for me. And then he brought up the story of Angulimala. Angulimala. So you might know about him. He was a serial killer. He killed 99, 999 people. And so Ajin Sichito said, I don't think you've done anything that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then what he said to me made a difference. So the next thing he said really made a difference. So Angulimala um, killed all those people, and then he had an encounter with the Buddha, and he realized um, the Dhamma, became a monk, became one of the Arahants, um, fully liberated. But of course, he had all this Kama, all these memories, right? And Ajahn Sachito said, Angulimala's heart must have been so vast, so big to be able to hold all that. And that was really a source of support for me because I could realize that what I needed to do was to grow the heart. To hold all that in my life. To really be able to Forgive it, and so you know, practicing the Brahmaviharas, like we did in the meditation tonight, can really help to purify the mind. It's like a balm on our wounds. It really uplifts the mind, develop the heart, grow the heart, and we'll find it easier to forgive others and forgive ourselves. And it's beautiful that those four divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, um, are available to us all the time. And there's one or more that's applicable in every situation. We could actually go through our entire lives in one of those states or another, and it would be appropriate. Loving kindness for when, well, things are happy, pleasant, and many other situations. Compassion for whenever there's suffering, or dukkha of any kind. Appreciative joy when we and other beings are doing good things, wholesome action. And equanimity when anyone's doing unwholesome action that kind of covers it all now having said all that that's um, kind of a nice lead in to the work of Buddhist global relief because it's such a beautiful opportunity of genera- for generosity and kindness compassion I'll uh, tell you a little bit about it. So as Tanya said, Buddhist Global Relief focuses on relieving chronic hunger and malnutrition. This year we have 30 projects in 15 countries. And um, we gave away more than a half a million dollars in grants for those projects. And also we awarded about $100,000 to eight emergency relief projects. So, the, you know, recovering from floods or storms, um, natural disasters, refugees, uh, political disasters, um, Things where people are really in severe need immediately. Last year, the projects of Buddhist Global Relief reached about 324,000 beneficiaries. It's a lot of people. We have projects that provide food, particularly for children, and we have a, a number of projects that are focused on food for children in school so they can study money goes a long way in our project in Haiti it costs 65 cents for a meal there will be 162,500 meals provided this year and we support a food program for um, an orphanage in Bangladesh where it's only 89 cents to feed a child for the day So you can imagine that the money really goes a long way. And it's a big problem. 66 million primary school-age children go to school hungry every day in the developing world. So we're making a difference. We also provide um, nutrition for mothers and infants. Uh, Our partner is Helen Keller International. And we have projects in Côte d'Ivoire and Kenya right now, reaching um, 77,000 infants and mothers in Côte d'Ivoire. And it's a, we have a three-year project going in Kenya that will reach 255,000 direct beneficiaries. And the focus of these projects are on the first 1,000 days of a child's life, really getting them started in a good way. So they have the nutrition they need. And it's, that's also a big, a big uh, gain, uh, uh, benefit, because 45% of deaths of children under the age of five, it's just from hunger and malnutrition. What an easy way to really make a big difference. We have a number of projects that are focused on education, We have projects focused on skills training for women so they can start businesses and do things like tailoring. And we have projects for sustainable farming, um, productive farming, um, that help people have enough food. I want to read one paragraph from the proposal from our, our partner, Lotus Outreach, who's working in Cambodia, and this is to help families we give rice to families, so they'll uh, with the with the stipulation that they keep their daughters in school in Cambodia. Very few women have an education uh, It's hard to stay in school through middle school or elementary school, and even fewer in high school and there's only only two percent of women have a baccalaureate education in Cambodia, if you can imagine so this is a This is a paragraph from their proposal. They say, girls, particularly who lack basic education, find themselves with very limited economic opportunities. Living in abject poverty with little education, rural girls are easily lured by the promise of lucrative work (coughs) in city centers and foreign countries. Such desperation leads many to turn to the sex trade. Intending to support their families through the restaurant and domestic jobs promised, girls are instead deceived into sexual servitude or slave labor. In many cases, the trafficker is a friend, relative, or neighbor. Measuring the number of girls trafficked into the commercial sex industry is an inexact science. Estimates of the scope of the problem vary widely. What is known... Is that of the 20,000 to 100,000 sex workers in Cambodia, one third of them are children and adolescents? So, the project we support is helping girls age 13 to 22 remain in school. And now, after some years of this project, we have some, some young women in college and in nursing school. So it's a wonderful organization to support. So it's good to know kind of where the money goes. And so your donations tonight will go to Buddhist Global Relief. I invite you to make good use of that opportunity. And I think we have a couple minutes for questions. Feel free to ask me anything you want. I might have an answer. <laughs>
1: And please use the microphone. So who wants to speak first?
0: Wow. That must have been clear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or really confusing. (laughs)
2: I just want to thank you for especially the story about Ajahn Suchito's effect and the comment about the expanding the heart. It mm-hmm. was very touching to me personally. So thank you very, very much. You're welcome. And let's see, I guess I have something else I want to say as well or ask. I practice a long time and I'm always trying to fine tune, you know, jhana practice. Uh, you know, uh, Utejaniya, mindfulness of mind, all these different mm-hmm. techniques or qualities. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I stopped, I was thinking the other day, well, what does the Buddha say? You know, in the Satipatthana, he just says, breathing in, one knows one breathes in. Breathing out, mm-hmm. mindfully breathing out. Could it be that simple?
0: Yes. Yes, it can be that simple. And actually, if you look at the Anapanasati Sutta, you know those mind, those instructions of mindfulness of in and out breathing, it covers the entire path. You have, you know, mindfulness of the body and feeling and mind and dhamma right there. Um, if you practice that set of instructions and really work with it, you'll find it leads to concentration and vipassana, wisdom. The Buddha said, you do this, enlightenment's coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's a good good point that we should, we always need to be discerning about our practice. We can get wrapped up in anything um, that can kind of pull us off course. And yeah, be kind and clear, simple is good. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.
1: So I've been having a lot of um, feeling like I've screwed up in the last couple of days. It's Friday. And and I kinda noticed I've got this feeling about many different things. And maybe I've just got this feeling and it grabs on to different yes. circumstances. But but there's the feeling underneath that's that's a little more constant. Mm-hmm. And uh I don't know what else to say about it, but <laughs> it's it's been interesting to see it there. Yes. And and difficult sometimes to to, to, to notice, to remember that I didn't necessarily screw something up. And like you said, these things aren't so important, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It can feel important because feeling is such a strong, has such a strong impact on us. Um, it's important to notice the danger of negative self-talk Because it can come in kind of an onslaught and get rolling um, in us. And one of the things I saw um, in the monastery is that sometimes I would um, say something harsh to someone or a little sharp and then ask myself, where did that come from? What is that about? Why? And I would reflect on what happened before. And what I noticed was, 24 hours earlier, I'd have a stream of self-critical thoughts. And that's how it was coming out. And there is danger in it. It's not just like, well, what happens in my own mind, that's no problem for anybody else. But it actually can be. So to see the danger and to... Be present with the feeling, like I said. When it's feeling, you want to be present with it. You don't want to suppress it. Be present with it, but you're observing it. You're not adding to it. And if it's thought, then, okay, that's that thought. Now I I can choose about the next thought. I don't have to go down that same path that I've been down many, many times before. Gladden the mind. Remind yourself of all the good that you do. The Buddha did that all the time. He was encouraging us to remind ourselves of the good that we're doing. And when we make some gain to reflect on that, note it in the mind, we tend to not do that. We, we run over and over the things that we feel we've done that aren't quite clearing the bar. And they tell me that that's a neurological kind of um, built-in mechanism to keep us safe. Evolution has us going over the negative things that might be dangerous many times more than the positive because evolution wants us to survive, but it doesn't care if we're happy. (laughs) So basically, my final words, be the person your pet thinks you are (laughs) and remind yourself that you are that person. Have a good night.